So, uh, so guys, this is our 11th week. This is our 11th week in our uh, trip into the lectionary, and the fourth one looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Mark. And so far, we've seen a lot of stuff. We've seen our in our last few Sundays our Lord battling raging winds, crashing waves. We've seen him take on a crazy demon-possessed cemetery dweller. But you know, we've also seen him involved in some more personal conflicts, both with the religious leaders they had to deal with, and even with his own family, who you may remember back in chapter 3, show up at a house where he's teaching to do an intervention. And those last two struggles, the ones with the leaders of the faith and with the members of his family, really set the stage for the encounter that we're going to read today uh, as our Lord goes back home, back to where he grew up. And not to, to Bethlehem where he was born, but to his childhood hometown and the place where he spent the first three decades of his life, presumably prior to his public ministry. And that place is Nazareth. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6. I left my Bible somewhere. Here it is. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to read along we're looking at Mark chapter 6, just the first six verses. This is what Mark tells us. He, of course, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of our unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, your word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we ask you to open our eyes that we see the wonders of it in these next fleeting moments. Empty our minds of any preoccupations or distractions. I fill our hearts with the gift of faith until we see Jesus. So the sleepy little town of Nazareth is, is famous for one thing and, and one thing only, and that's his, was the hometown of Jesus. It's the place where he spent his boyhood, living with his mother, his father, where he grew up alongside his brothers and sisters. It's the place where he learned the carpenter's trade under the direction of Joseph. But by the point of this account, we just read time has passed and now there's no mention of Joseph. And so maybe presume that he died. Uh, and, and Mary may now possibly have been a widow. Uh, and even though the Bible doesn't tell us this, the adult Jesus may possibly have returned to his village a number of times to see his family over the years as he traveled around. But this event uh, and the time surrounding this particular homecoming were significant enough to be recorded not just by Mark, who would have heard the Apostle Peter recount this incident, 
but by Matthew and Luke as well. Uh, and, and I think proving hundreds of years in advance that famous quote by Thomas Wolfe who coined in the 1940s when he said, you can't go home again. You can't go home again. Uh, and as you're going to see, Jesus found out uh, how painfully true that adage was. Uh, just to give you a little bit of, of context, uh, the town of, of Nazareth, if you can call it a town, was a tiny little backwater hamlet with a population, archaeologists tell us, of about 500 souls who had settled about 60 acres. So it's roughly the size of palm tree acres here at the Any Anybody from there live there? Know anybody there? Not one person. Wow. Okay, it is really small. Anybody know where it is? Okay, all right. Well, obviously, though, you know, even if you don't live there, just like your own local park, when you live in a place that small, everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. So when Jesus, the local boy now turned charismatic teacher and famous preacher, returns home, he's warmly welcomed at first. See, he left... Nazareth as a relative unknown. Now he's returned as a rabbi, as an accomplished speaker, a worker of miracles. And upon coming home, he went as he naturally would to the local synagogue. He was invited to preach. And if you've ever, uh, ever been to a Jewish tour service uh, like that, they usually consist of uh, public prayers, reading from the Law and the Prophets, and a sermon. So, you know, kind of similar to, to our service. Uh, and any competent teacher could be asked to speak because at least during Jesus' lifetime, local Jewish fellowships did not have full-time pastors like we would think of them. They didn't have full-time rabbis. They didn't have a full-time Torah teacher as such, but they were always uh, had among the congregation several leading men who could teach and do the preaching, and they would take turns doing it. And should a qualified teacher like Jesus come through town, uh, he could always be invited to be there as a guest speaker. So Jesus, on this particular event that we're reading about, uh, is asked to speak in his home church. And you can almost imagine here, uh, the place would have been packed, right? Uh, so of course, most people didn't miss Sabbath service anyway. What well, would be Sabbath, but miss uh, Torah service. Because if the, uh, the town's most famous son was there to preach, people were going to come and watch. And so you just imagine him surrounded with uh, family, childhood friends. Probably more than a few widely curious folks just wanting to see what all the fuss was about this guy, what he was all about. And, and as he begins to deliver his sermon, the text tells us his audience, who was impressed and startled at first, turned hostile. And they said, where did this man get these things? What's the, the wisdom given him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? Son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, our sisters not here with us. And they took offense at him. And there's two things I want you to not miss here. One I think is kind of incidental. Uh, the other one is vital to the rest of the story. First, if you notice how they said, is not this the carpenter? Uh, and some Bible scholars and commentaries I looked into concluded maybe that Joseph had most likely died before Jesus began his public ministry. And so uh, he, now instead of Joseph, was thought of as the town carpenter. Now that's, that's just complete supposition. But what I don't want you to miss, for sure, from the reading, is how someone in the group 
most likely some nosy neighbor who had known the comings and goings of the extended family for a long time, tried to get in a, in a good kind of passive aggressive dig in at Jesus and his mother by referring to the Lord intentionally and disparagingly as Jesus, the son of Mary. Right? So remember, a Jewish man was normally referred to as the son of whatever his father's name was. So you would have expected that Jesus would have been called son of Joseph, right? Even if Joseph was already deceased by then. But calling him the son of Mary was a rude way to throw doubt on the legitimacy of Jesus' birth because it implied that nobody in the town could be sure of the name of his actual father, since, of course, they knew that Mary was already pregnant before the wedding ceremony took place. So this is not a compliment. Uh, so this whole incident in Nazareth wasn't really a happy experience after all for anyone, uh, especially not for Mary, who was not only publicly insulted, but forced to watch her son be vilified by the very people who should have been the most supportive, but who instead were offended. The Greek text there says uh, skandaliso. And if that word sounds familiar, it's because our English language borrows that word directly from the Greek to give us the word scandal, scandalize. And so uh, the people of Nazareth weren't just offended, like somebody who you maybe forgot to send their birthday card to them one time, right? But they were scandalized. They were shocked. They were outraged. They were off the chain angry that the local handyman of questionable parentage, who had never been to high school, let alone seminary, was standing in the village synagogue delivering the morning message. Uh, and in that moment, they were ashamed. They were ashamed both of him and for him. So that, I think, makes a good place to stop for a minute and ask ourselves, do you and I ever act ashamed of Jesus? Of who he is and of what he's done? And what all this means to, to be his follower. I know I've shared this story with you guys before. I don't mind sharing it because it's no secret. Uh, because the folks involved in it made it really very public. Um, I'm speaking of the couple who attended here, you may remember, for about six months until one day the bulletin had an article in it condemning homosexuality. Uh, and Vicki had just greeted the folks, you know, like she does talk to most people. She had a nice little chat with them and I don't know what that, maybe two rows past him. When the lady springs out of her seat like she sat on a pin, grabbed her husband's hand and announced for the whole world to hear, we got to get out of here. Foolishly, I chased her down in the parking lot, only to find out that her daughter was gay. And not only was she gay, but she was actually a diversity instructor whose whole job it was to teach people like school administrators and judges and city councils how to be more sensitive and accepting of, of their particular ilk. And so now suddenly these two people were ashamed to be associated with this church and ashamed to be associated with the Christ that we preach and with the word that we proclaim. Why? Because they love their family attachment more and their preconceived reputation and their political correctness more than they love the Lord Jesus. They love the things of the flesh more than they love the Lord. And actually, you know, Jesus speaks of this kind of thing a little further on, as we're going to see in Mark chapter 8, when he said, uh, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father 
and the full angels. So notice what he said, whoever is ashamed of not just me, but of me and of my words. And what are his words? What, what words did Jesus preach everywhere he went? Well, he tells us very plainly in John 7, 7, when he said to his disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that his words are evil. That's why the hometown folks in Nazareth got so bent out of shape. That's why they were so scandalized and ashamed because he testified against their sin. And testified of their need for repentance and they didn't want to hear it. And in the face of their utter contempt now after Jesus completed his sermon, he said to his critics in the audience, in the words of a traditional Hebraic idiom, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Uh, and then we're told in, in verse 5 uh, that he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. And, you know, I think, and when you read that, it's kind of odd. Uh, I think when you first read that, especially if you're not someone well-grounded in the Word of God, you can't help but wonder what exactly does it mean when the text says Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there? Right, what's that about? So, uh, some translations say he couldn't do any miracles there. And he's the Son of God, right? What could stop him? Why couldn't Jesus have just whipped out a few miracles and really showed this bunch of locals who they were talking to? But without getting too technical, the words that Mark uses here in the original Greek text uh, I think throws a little more light on the sentence. I, I think I have it on the screen there. Uh, but the way he says it in the phrasing in this verse, in what's called the passive voice, that Mark uses means having the power to do something, but only using that power when the time is right. Only using that power when custom dictates that it's appropriate to do so. So it wasn't that Jesus didn't have the power in himself to work miracles. Of course he did. But because of the people's violent unbelief and their hardened contempt of his ministry, it wasn't the right time or the right place to do any more miracles. Because remember, the people already knew all about Jesus' power. Right? We just read it. That's why they said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And what's the next verse say? Yeah, how are such mighty works done? They already knew what he can do. And so, no, it wasn't their lack of faith that somehow prevented Jesus from being able to do miracles. Uh, church, praise God. He's never dependent on me and my faith for you and yours to activate his power. Right? But that's what the worldly church teaches, right? Uh, and actually, believe it or not, I just, I just caught this. I don't even know how I found it. I uh, watched a message by a popular young health and wealth gospel pastor by the name of Stephen Furry. Please don't look him up. He's a guilty heretic. Uh, he gave a sermon that he entitled, The One Thing Christ Cannot Do. Now, already that puts me off, but I, I did see a few seconds of it, in which he actually says, blasphemously, that it is impossible for God to act against our unbelief. Now, that might sound logical, maybe, I don't know, but I'd say just five minutes in the gospel will show you why that's not true. We just saw last month. When Jesus calmed the storm, even the disciples thought they were going to die and drown. And what did Jesus say? He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They still got saved, didn't they? 
But later on in Mark, in the feeding of 5,000, when Jesus says to his men, you give these people something to eat. They said, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and goods in them? It doesn't show much faith, does it? In fact, at one point, Jesus gets so disgusted at the general lack of faith in the whole land that Matthew 17, 17 tells us, and Jesus answered, what? Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And that's just one of a hundred examples I can give you to refute the name it and claim it pseudo-gospel. And the, the your faith puts God's power to work theology that passes for Christian teaching in the megachurches. Guys, that's not true. The truth is, Jesus didn't do any more miracles in Nazareth because there was no reason to. The people of Nazareth had already made up their minds. They had already decided to reject Jesus, and so as Scottish author and theologian George MacDonald used to say, to give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. To give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. See, these people already knew everything they needed to know to acknowledge who Jesus was. Just like the rest of humanity does. Romans 1 is clear about that. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. Because remember, guys, Jesus never did any of his miracles to provide for his own comfort or to increase his own personal popularity, right? But only ever to point to his teaching, which was never. Come activate my power by your faith for your own personal provision, but was always repent and believe the gospel. Right? See, so Jesus never did a sign or a miracle or a mighty work unless it advanced the work of God's kingdom. Because Jesus wasn't a magician doing tricks to amuse the crowd or to make himself look good or to fawn over his family or to impress his hometown class reunion. Because it wouldn't be proper to perform a miracle. For someone who is stubbornly determined to be skeptical about his power or who willfully denied his identity when they knew better. To Jesus' hometown, folks didn't want to acknowledge the living and vital ministry that Jesus was making available to them, despite all the evidence they needed being available. So the gospel records that no mighty work was done. And not just then, not just in Jesus' lifetime, but for centuries afterwards, because history records that even though Christianity spread like wildfire through that region after the day of Pentecost, uh, and little home churches and meeting places for followers of Jesus popped up all over the place, the first known church in Nazareth wasn't established until 300 years after Jesus' ascension. Now, that's a stubborn bunch of people. Right? But now don't forget, it's, it's very easy from this distance in time and circumstance to throw stones at those folks and say, oh, you know what, if, if I had been there, if I had seen what they saw, I would be different. Right? Uh, I would have believed and followed Jesus, no question. I would have done it on the spot, right? Don't we think that, right? If we were there, if we were one of the people of Nazareth, we would all recognize Jesus from his words 
and it's worse, wouldn't we? But, but may I say to you truthfully and gently, the Bible says, no, you wouldn't. And neither would I. Not without the Spirit's intervention. That's why when the disciples asked Jesus later, after his encounter with the rich young ruler, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Because church, the Bible is clear that by nature the human heart is an unbelieving heart. And without the transforming power of God the Holy Spirit, we too will reject the only one that can save us. Even if we know the promises in God's word. Even if we're sitting under the word every week. Because our natural response in the flesh is to want to look the other way. We prefer to remain in unbelief. We prefer to remain in sin and reject Christ. Isaiah talks about this. In fact, he spoke about how uh, our Savior would be treated by people not just in Nazareth of, of AD 33, but in so many places, in so many times, including right here in 21st century America. Uh, if you're in the habit of underlining and marking things in your Bible, I encourage you to do this for Isaiah 53. And I'm going to read to you, which says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But brothers and sisters, despite all of humanity's hate and rejection and lack of faith, Jesus went to that cross to be wounded for our transgressions. To be bruised for our iniquities in church. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in his rejection. And in, in his resurrection. That's the hope of our redemption and all of it. All of it waiting to be received in all of its power. Here among his family. And in his own house. At this table of mercy that's been prepared for you and you belong to him. Will you meet him there today? Or will you be offended as a Let's pray again. God, our Father, is truly right in our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus, and asking you by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again that you unite us in your truth and love, so that we can confess your name unapologetically and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine. We ask you to pour out your spirit upon these, your gifts, and upon us, that the meal we receive may be a communion of our Lord Jesus Christ in his name.